All right. Hey, everyone. I'm Tish Hayes, one of the librarians at Marine Valley, and I am thrilled to welcome you to this panel discussion organized by the Marine Valley Library as part of our One Book, One College program on Eve Ewing's Book of Poetry 1919, which you could find as an ebook through our library. Today, we're going to focus on a theme of our program, which is race and equity. Given that we are all living through a global pandemic, we wanted to talk about COVID-19 and to specifically discuss the health disparities that this virus has exposed. Hello, everybody. My name is Troy Swanson. I'm uh, the library department chair, and we are very excited uh, to welcome um, some of our faculty members to help us explore this topic. And I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves if they would. Hi, I'm Josh Fulton. I'm an associate professor of history here at Moraine Valley Community College. Hello, I'm Angela Nicholson. I'm one of the nursing instructors in a nursing department. Hello, I'm Kelly Nichols. I'm the department chair for nursing, and I also serve as faculty in the nursing department. Hi, everybody. I'm Amy Williamson. I'm department chair of psychology, and I also teach psychology. Okay, thank you all and thank you uh, for sharing your time and expertise with us. We do appreciate it. Um, to get us started, I want to turn to Kelly, um, who's been working out in hospitals since the start of the pandemic, um, kind of on the front line. So thank you for that, Kelly. And um, can you just share a little bit about, you know, what you've seen out there um, on the front lines? Well, at the start of the pandemic, um, I work in a university hospital setting. Um, and at the start of the pandemic, Resources were very scarce in the hospitals. Um, we were lacking PPE. Um, the admission rate in the ICU was higher for people coming in with COVID-19. Um, the staff were becoming more stressed. Um, and just the unknown. No one really knew anything about COVID. Uh, so this was all very new to everyone. And looking to see how we could help the patients that were coming in was most important. Kelly, can I just ask a question? You mentioned um, the term PPE, which probably everyone on earth knows what that means. But could you, and I've seen you all geared up in your, your stuff you were to the hospital. Could you um, describe what that means and just kind of um, what you do to get ready when you go into work? Sure, sure. So for a PPE, that's personal protective equipment. Um, so in everyday terms, most people think of it as like gloves or an extra gown that goes over our normal um, uniforms in the hospital setting. For COVID, we've kind of had to step it up a bit. Um, everyone is wearing goggles, head coverings, um, shoe coverings over our normal uniforms. And most of us, as we go in, the clothes that we come home with, we don't take them off in the house. We take them off before we um, get in the home to protect our loved ones. Thanks for sharing what you've been going through, Kelly. Um, so with COVID being so new, uh, it kind of feels like unprecedented times, but um, we know that we have all, or we haven't lived through a, a pandemic before, but pandemics have been a part of our world. Um, so we want to get a little bit of that historical context. So um, hoping Josh can help us out with that. Absolutely. Uh, so there's two kind of things that I want to kind of weave through a story here uh, for us. And I figured it would be really kind of great to uh, start with a quote. So the United States has gone through many different kinds of epidemics or pandemics really since its founding. 
And there's a great book by a man named David Oshinsky about the history of polio. Uh, and he writes about life in America in the early 1900s. And, and this is the quote. In 1900, toothbrushes were still rare in the United States. Deodorants and shampoos almost unheard of. Few people bathed more than once a week or rinsed their hair more than once a month. Fewer still washed their hands before eating or after using a toilet. Spitting was almost universal. Travelers shared beds and chamber pots with complete strangers. Most houses, lacking screens, attracted swarms of insects in warm weather. Water supplies were unfiltered, and food was poorly refrigerated, if at all. Cities reeked from the stench of garbage, horse droppings, slaughterhouses, tanneries, and open sewers. Now, this quote comes to us from David Oshinsky in his book, Polio. I think there are two real points for us to conceptualize here. The first is, of course, America is engaged in an act of medical professionalization in the first decades of the 20th century. And this is obviously needed given what Oshinsky writes about life in America at that time. However, America at the same time is also grappling with these real realities of racial inequity and both legally as well as throughout aspects of American culture. And what we're talking about today when it comes to access to care is a reflection of that legacy. So there's a few aspects of this, I think, that are good for us to understand. So the first, of course, again, being that our current national dialogue over race and equity reflects this legacy, right, of history of racial inequity. So we have both histories of legal segregation, racial segregation, as well as aspects of it across American culture. You have in the 1950s, of course, the fairly famous Brown v. Board decision and its legacies. Moving beyond speaking about perhaps one or two groups, right, when we're talking about uh, American Indians or Native Americans, we have, of course, the legacies of reservations, mistreatment, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and, of course, the systematic essentially kidnapping of children with the creation of boarding schools at the end of the 19th and into the early 20th century. We have legacies, of course, as well in the immigration process of the influence of eugenics and the manner in which whiteness and the emphasis on it was placed front and center when it came to what it meant to be an American. It was within the Naturalization Act of around 1789 or 1790 that said that you actually had to be a freeborn white person in order to, in effect, become American. So again, this idea of race and equity is center to the, you know, central to the American story. When we're talking access to healthcare, though, again, white Americans tended to blame immigrants of numerous races for spreading disease. And of course, how they constructed race, and race being that socially constructed sort of element with this, uh, is something that really evolves in the early 20th century. Racial science, social hygiene theories, and eugenics, again, informed which racial groups they're placing blame on. That blame shaped public health institutions, it shaped their creation, and it shaped public health policy in the years before the influenza pandemic of 1918, and especially after it as well. It's an era of rising nativism, it's an era in which, say, for example, communities like Chinatown uh, in San Francisco, California, uh, when they see outbreaks of the plague, uh, obviously place blame on Chinese immigrants, right? Obviously, they're to blame for this kind of thing. Obviously, it's their fault. 
We can look at, say, for example, the creation of the United States Public Health Service and its operation in the immigration process in the early 1900s, where they attempted to identify and look for cases of trachoma and fauvus, conducting examinations on certain immigrants and not others, right? This is the idea. So overall, public health and urban planning prioritized whiteness in the first half of the 20th century. But if we establish communities or see the establishment of communities and care institutions nationwide, this meant as America suburbanized and moved into the 21st century, primarily African-Americans and many in the Latinx community disproportionately would bear the brunt of legacies of mistreatment, routine denial of access to quality care, and at the same time, they're going to also be blamed for a number of the health concerns that existed within this period and after in the American story. I'm thinking, of course, of examples during World War II, where what was termed venereal disease, the blame for which was placed squarely at the feet of African-American women who were viewed as a threat by the United States government and particularly the military to the operations of the army. Eugenics, for example, led to widespread policies of forced sterilization across many communities in order to gain access to welfare and to assistance programs. For example, the case of North Carolina, where women, if they wanted to be able to get assistance for their families, would be required uh, to be sterilized. This begins around 1929 uh, and goes all the way up to 1976. Uh, the last cases uh, of this occurring. We can also look at cases of access to forms of uh, childcare. Uh, so in the aftermath of World War II, uh, in a number of African-American communities across the South, uh, you have, of course, uh, the use of midwifery uh, as a, a very active and, and common aspect uh, for, you know, again, this part of care. Well, the Georgia legislature and a number of the other state legislatures here uh, wanted uh, these midwives out of the process, uh, you know, partly as they argued because of professionalization, but of course this is much more about race. So I think when we are thinking about access to care in the 21st century, we need to think about routine legacies of denial, uh, aspects of, of class connected with race, and then how those things kind of interweave into the very difficult process that we find ourselves in today. You know, that's so interesting you bring that up, Josh. Um, when mm -hmm. I was looking up some statistics on COVID, um, non-Hispanic Blacks and Hispanics and Alaskan Americans were five times more likely to have COVID-19, which is very high, very predominant, you know, and that's what we were seeing in the hospital setting. So thank you for pointing that out. Sure. It's, a, it's an important aspect of this that I think, you know, the national dialogue and conversation really should be around. Yeah, it, it's easy to overlook the historic context and we, we look at it and act surprised. And unfortunately, it's our, we're still living um, with our history. Um, let's um, turn to Amy. She was uh, on, wanted to talk about um, culturally appropriate care, which I think um, connects nicely into many of the points um, Josh has made. Okay, yeah, um, yeah, I think Josh set it up pretty well in terms of what um, 
kind of where I wanted to go with this a little bit. I want to back up before we get to culturally appropriate care um, and just talk a little bit about the ACEs study um, for people that aren't familiar with it. It's a study that um, was done to look at uh, childhood experiences and, and mainly traumatic childhood experiences. Um, and what they found, and when you start looking at it, some of the things that they're looking at are things like neglect, abuse, but also things like um, household dysfunction, incarceration levels, poverty, uh, racism, and how all these things impact. And what they found was that there is definitely this um, accumulated effect that happens. So you have children growing up in these uh, environments that are, you know, not optimal. And what we see then as a result of the, at what the ACEs study was really looking at, it, it, you know, although it's a behavioral health study, in a lot of ways, it was really looking at health effects. And one of the things that it found was that these scores are linked to adult onset of a lot of different illnesses, which are precursors or, or kind of risk factors for COVID. Things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, um, some substance abuse issue. I mean, these aren't necessarily linked to COVID, but all these other kinds of uh, issues that come up for people because they're uh, in early childhood are developing in a lot of these traumatic environments. So um, one of the things that came out of that is a whole report on what we should be doing as a society to intervene, preventative measures that should be in place. And part of that is the culturally responsive care. But one of the things that I, I really wanna emphasize is that there is a toxic level of stress that is happening for black indigenous people of color in the United States. And when we sit back and we look at, oh, you know, well, why is this happening more in these particular groups? We really have to take that into account because any person that's under stress is gonna have impaired immune functioning, which is gonna leave them more susceptible to all, all kinds of different things. So, it, it that sometimes gets left out of the discussion, I think, of this and how huge an impact that stress can have, does have on people. Um, so when we start looking at these things like systemic racism, what's going on in the country, I think that's, you know, related, the, the things that are happening right now are very much related to COVID. They might not seem related, but they are. Um, like Kelly pointed out, the, the huge, differences in numbers for people um, with COVID, people that are dying of COVID. Um, the stats are alarming in terms of who's dying from this, who's who's getting this, and you know, there's exposure issues too. Who has the ability to work from home? You know, who has or who has to go out into the community to work? Um, those things have to do with socioeconomic status, which again goes back to some of the things that Josh was talking about with um, just kind of how the system has been set up over time. So when you look at the ACEs, you know, study, one of the things that they take into account um, is really this, this, the underlying piece is the historical trauma that people are exposed to. And 
with culturally responsive care, we have to be able to meet with patients or you know clients, whatever. We have to be able to meet with them and understand that this is the experience that they bring when they come in for any kind of healthcare or any kind of behavioral healthcare. <clears throat> and that's a basic underpinning for everybody. And then of course, we're looking at things like social conditions, where they grew up, the city that they grew up in, those kind of things. And then we move on to those adverse childhood experiences. And the other thing we know now is that adverse childhood experiences also cause some neurodevelopmental differences, which again, leads people to be more vulnerable. So to, to look at this big picture of, you know, well, these people are dying. Why are they dying? You know, why are more people dying? Why are more pe people catching this who are in the um, Black, Indigenous, people of color in that group? Why is it happening? We have to really look at this from this experiential standpoint because it's not just randomly happening. So coming from this, um, the big Kaiser study that was done with the CDC, they made a bunch of recommendations and said, here's some of the things that we wanted to do. Here's some of the ways that we can help people um, and kind of bring more equity to healthcare, more, um, you know, people, basically more people getting care. Um, a lot of those recommendations are still sitting in the report and they haven't happened yet. So um, one of the things that's really important uh, is the um, the Obama, well, the, um, I don't want to call it Obamacare, but the, uh, the extra supplemental um, laws that came with the insurance that allow people with pre-existing conditions to have coverage. People can get insurance on the exchange if they need it. Um, because people that don't have medical insurance are also less likely to get care early. They wait longer to get care, and then we've got issues there. So um, I think that, let me just double check here what I got on my slide here. Um, so what we have is racial disparities. You've got the under-resourced communities, um, and that's one of the issues. So culturally responsive care says we need to get, or culturally appropriate care, we need to really get more resources into the areas that need it. We need to focus on victim-centered services. We need to really make the assumption that when people are coming in for care, that they have these experiences, that, that this is the baseline. And then maybe rule out that they don't have those experiences because we have to assume that anybody who's in that group, um, the Black Indigenous people of color, they will have experienced racism, systemic racism, discrimination. They, they will just automatically have experienced that. We have to basically take that in as part of the experience that they're bringing to, to us as a healthcare provider. Um, the other thing is that there's trust issues involved. And when um, people are going into the healthcare system, there hasn't always been, you know, the greatest um, record of people being honest um, with people of color. And so, you know, how do we develop trust? So looking at things like how do you find um, people from the community that can be liaisons for healthcare? Um, you know, that how can we get people to go to regular doctor visits? And I'm sure the nursing faculty can speak more to some of the, these, these kind of things. Um, the other things that we want to look at are socioeconomic status, 
things like language barriers. Um, how do people, how can, can they communicate with healthcare? Can they communicate what their needs are? Um, how do we address those kind of barriers? That, that's one, one of the things that culturally um, appropriate responsive care would look at. Literacy, you know, we don't often think about that, but literacy can also be an issue for people that um, is the information that we're giving patients or giving to people in language that they can understand, you know, where, how are we coming at this? A lot of people that are um, healthcare professionals, you know, have probably gone to college and they have a certain level of um, kind of education. And so that, that kind of guides to how we write these uh, pamphlets and different flyers and things that we give to uh, the people. The other one is, um, a little, I don't know if it's controversial, but um, also that, that the healthcare system needs to look at the importance of traditional healers and uh, for indigenous people in particular, um, you know, other healing outside of the normal narrow way that we tend to focus on it in the Western medicine, um, that those things, that incorporating those things can be really helpful for the success of patient outcomes. So culturally appropriate care encompasses a whole lot of things. Um, and, and this isn't an exhaustive list that I'm talking about here, but just kind of scratching the surface of what kinds of things we can be doing. And I think in, in light of what's going on with COVID, we really need to be um, you know, paying more attention to these things because this is, we're, we're witnessing it in real time, how all of these issues, particularly with the, um, the trauma history play out for people. And now they're, you know, and then if we put them into the healthcare system and they're re-traumatized again there, you know, we're just perpetuating this um, cycle. So. I think all these things, uh, could, we could use a, a better look at these things right now. Thanks for that, Amy. I think um, one of the things that you bring up that um, really highlights just the need for education and awareness around health-related resources that is culturally appropriate. Um, and I'm wondering, Angela, if you can talk to us a little bit about that education and awareness piece. Thank you. Yeah, I was really, um, really interested what Amy was talking about because she really was really tying into a lot of the issues and the things that we have that are difficult. But I consider that our task uh, is to educate and to teach people of color and who are victims of disparity um, information, giving them information concerning their health since one of the biggest things that is causing our numbers to be so high with COVID is pre-existing uh, conditions. And um, they have that saying that an ounce of prevention beats a pound of cure. Well, a big deal with that has to do with, with education. And in nursing, uh, uh, teaching our students, one of, one of the biggest things I think I say so many times is the fact that we're not just nurses, but we're educators. We have to understand that our job is to teach. Our job is to to help people find out where they are, uh, find out what information they already know, what things that they don't know, and how we can actually um, be a help to make changes in their lives. And the thing, we have some issues that are very difficult with that because we talk about developing a rapport. 
when you're with a person, um, again, similar to what uh, Amy was talking about, uh, people that who have had uh, experience where they were not uh, told the truth or where they were not cared for often have walls or defenses uh, up that we uh, as nurse educators have to go through and try to, to, to push down. Uh, usually there is a time restraint in that because of the fact um, we may see them at the clinic or we may see them at the bedside and our time limit is 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 very limited so we have to to figure out ways uh to actually talk uh have active listening uh come off with an attitude yes we're knowledgeable but we're also approachable we're, we're also non-judgmental because i also talk about um the fact that a lot of things that you will find uh as you actually interview patients as uh their ideas of what health is their ideas of remedies their ideas of actually replacing medication or their lack of understanding how important it is to take your medication regularly some have not been to the doctor in maybe years um, a lot of times it's it's economical it's, it, it's economical but a lot of times it's just plain the lack of knowledge um the lack of trust so uh, we, we have to understand cultural things, things uh, about each individual, how people view healthcare, how people view nurses, what do they feel about a particular race, different things like that all do come into play and how much uh, a person will be able to receive what you're, you're actually giving them. So again, we, we develop this rapport, this trust, we, we, we find out what is the best way that we can actually communicate uh because everybody doesn't understand uh there are levels of understanding there are uh interpretations of what you said that maybe you didn't say or maybe the the patient themselves or the person is telling me something that i don't quite understand what they're saying so we need to talk about it we need to rephrase that or we need to talk about it and, and get clarity on exactly what you mean and as the, this goes on then we can actually begin to to uh integrate teaching and understanding uh, concerning uh, exercise, diet, different things like that. But we do uh, may, many times have a challenge of getting on the level, uh, maybe that they are. And you also said that too, Amy, um, we are educated and a lot of our clients are not. So they may not understand our big words. And we actually challenge students, you know, they'll, they'll give me a paper and I say, well, if you're getting ready to teach this to a patient, all these words, TID and a before meals, all these these Greek uh, uh, words that we teach you, they don't understand what you're talking about. You've got to actually come down to a level where, where they can understand what you're saying, what you're doing. Another thing I find out, people are making choices and it, 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 it breaks my heart, but people are making choices between getting their, their medication or getting bread and food or bread and different things for their children. And in these cases, you know, you can almost, you know, just say, oh, well, of course you need your medication, but if you're not in that situation, it's very difficult uh, to figure out how we can do that. That's why I also say that we really need to bring to the table information. Uh, if we know we're gonna actually have a time to, to talk with a patient, interview or assess the patient's knowledge base, uh, we need to give them some answers. And I think some of the, the greatest answers that there are a lot of uh, places that offer free medication or medication at discounts, which people don't know about. I actually um, 
found a place uh, that that gave medication, a certain type of medication called metformin, which is uh, to decrease blood sugar. They were giving it actually for free. Uh, there was places that that have four dollar prescriptions opposed to forty dollars. These kinds of things. Uh, make a difference where a person will say, you know, I, I can afford $4. I think I'm going to go and I think I'm going to get my medication, which again is going to chain effect all the other things about their health and making sure that they're able uh, uh, to, to, to make a better life for themselves. Language barriers or something else we have to deal with. Um, we seem to be pretty lucky now where they have a lot of interpreters in hospitals and, and clinics, which, which helps us break a lot of that barrier. Um, again, I think the biggest thing is for us to be aware uh, of what people are dealing with, what people are going through, how they perceive healthcare. Do they, first of all, feel it's necessary? Do they feel that if I go and prepare something that grandma taught me to take instead of my medication, which is free, uh, why wouldn't that be just as good as going to the doctor and paying $40 for a prescription? So we have to find that out first of all, and then we have to slowly with respect uh, and understanding, let them know why why that really wouldn't be the best thing for them to do. So I think trust um, is a big deal, and uh, it's it's definitely easier said than done. Uh, it, it trust usually takes time, and many times we don't have that. So we need to go and do as much as we can in the time restraints that we have. I would, uh, I'd like to keep the conversation on education going. So thank you, Angela. And I think you hit some, you know, the key parts and it would be, we would be, you know, remiss with two members of our nursing faculty here, our award-winning nursing program um, to not focus a little bit on our own students and what um, you all do um, in the nursing program to prepare our students, especially thinking about the cultural competencies, sending people out in the workforce to do the kind of things that you're talking about, Angela. So. Could you guys jump in and help us um, just learn a little bit about some of the work you do? Sure, I'll, I'll go. Um, for cultural competencies within our nursing program, we start this at the beginning of our curriculum with our students. So the students are um, taught from the very beginning, we focus on the whole person, not just small pieces, not just the medical portion of why the person is coming to see us or why they're in the hospital or why they're at the clinic but the whole per, uh, person. The focus is on the community as well, educating, like Angela has said, and Amy um, and Josh, and advocating for change within the community. Now more than ever, um, with COVID happening, this is a great time for people to strategize in their community, to promote wellness in their community, and to make sure people are aware, where can I go to get COVID testing? Is it free? Does it cost money? You know. I, you know, a lot of people worry about those aspects of getting treatment and care. Um, in the program, we also focus on learning about different religions, culture, cultures, and ethnic groups. Um, the students are taught this throughout the entire curriculum, all four semesters of our nursing program. And we take this right to the bedside with the patients as well. The students get a variety of patient experiences. Um, they go to a variety of hospital settings. You know, somebody may say, well, I don't want to go to Chicago. Well, that Chicago experience sometimes might be the better experience because you will see a plethora of different type of people that come from different walks of life. And they they enrich our minds every time we touch a patient, every single time. 
we, you know, get involved with someone. Um, I just have my notes up at the same time. Um, uh, as nurses, we teach the students that we take risks to save lives. So even with COVID, I mean, there are days that uh, in the hospital setting, you know, everybody's been afraid. Our students are afraid, faculty are afraid. Everyone is afraid to come back in the hospital setting. And being someone that has worked through this pandemic thus far, um, we educate the students, we educate the faculty, and just let people know, you know, as long as we do safe practices, everything should be okay. But that's another aspect that we look for um, and teach our students. The more education we provide to the community, um, the better the outcome. And that's something that we strongly promote through our program. Um, we take students to do OB, where the moms deliver their babies, and we teach them. You can definitely tell if someone has not received good medical care or education when it comes to delivering that baby and maybe having a complication. So education, education, education is so important. It keeps people healthier, keeps everyone out of the hospital setting. Um, and it also reduces like crime and everything in the community as well when people are doing well. It increases life expectancy also. Um, I have some other little points that I wanted to go back to. So we also teach the students that when we're educating people, we teach them at a fifth grade level so they can understand the information and make sure that, you know, like Angela said, the medical jargon. We don't, we don't, we don't use that a lot of times with people. Um, we love to meet people that uh, and have colleagues that are, know multiple languages, which is a beautiful thing, you know, from Polish, I mean, Spanish, it, it, any languages we can get a hold of, we love it. The more the merrier. And in the healthcare setting, diversity is such a huge need. Um, it's sometimes sad when we don't see a lot of diversity in some of the hospital settings, um, but we work with the uh, hospital management and see how we can help them diversify the practice for the community. And then the last thing we offer, we tell our students is to be themselves. You know, it's nothing like being yourself. Um, and I always come to the students being myself and I encourage others to do the same just so that the patients are more likely to open up. You'll find out that they haven't been taking their medication or they've been getting, you know, some pills from Johnny down the block. So being yourself is very important. You're more likely to get further, get more information and be able to help someone. All right. Thank you so much, Kelly, for sharing that. Um, Angela, did you have anything else you wanted to add in terms of um, working with students? If not, that's fine. <laughs> Pretty much everything's been said. It, it's just, um, it, it's just stressed, um, cultural sensitivity, um, being as knowledgeable as you can about different cultures, different ideas, different people and their thoughts, uh, where you go in, we teach you, you know, you, we all have our thoughts and pre uh, ideas that are already 
we, we think about or have learned, but we have to uh, put that aside in our professionalism and treat everybody with respect. And it does come off. I mean, people can tell when you genuinely care and you're really open to respect and open to listen without judgment. So silence is really important to actually just listen. And you get a lot of information that way. That's good advice um, for like almost everything. <laughs> Can I um, jump in real fast? Yeah. I, I just want to say thanks to Angela and Kelly and all of your colleagues for going back to the hospitals with um, our students. I know all of us are taking our own risks and everyone at Moraine Valley is working um, to serve students, but the nursing program is really in a very unique situation. And I know um, there's, like you said, there's risk involved and um, you're all working um, to minimize that risk and to do your jobs and all of us need nurses <laughs> so thank you for training um the next generation of moraine valley nurses that are going to go out there and i just think uh i wanted to give a shout out to that because i know um it's kind of scary and we appreciate it yeah thank you troy i mean i think we're ramping up to get ready for this and you know if things get out of control we'll go to plan b and plan c but we'll do the best we can Well, thank you all for um, all that you've shared so far. We want to wrap up the discussion just by offering one um, one final opportunity to share any final thoughts that you might have um, after listening to each other talk. If there's any final words of ideas or advice or anything else you'd like to share. I, I think it just after hearing everybody talk, I think um, especially about the students at Moraine. I think that, um, you know, that we have a lot of nursing students in the psych class, particularly the lifespan that, um, that's required and, and a lot in the abnormal psych class. And um, they're always very thoughtful students. So I think, you know, the nursing program does a really good job with um, helping the students understand the individual needs uh, to focus on that. Uh, I think that you know, we talk a lot about stigma and things related to that around mental health. And I think that, um, you know, the more that we're having these conversations, particularly about how race is impacting these things, uh, everything in your life, but how it's impacting health in particular, mental health and physical health, um, I think the students and all of us will be better prepared to handle whatever is to come. I would say um, also that it's important to know your community and learn about your community that you live in, no matter which one it is, um, because that will definitely help you determine how you can help in your community uh, health, health-wise, especially when it comes to COVID at this point, if there's an upsurge in your community, being more aware, educating others, even those small things help make such a big difference, no matter which community we live in. Any other final thoughts? I, I just want to thank everyone because I think the information that was was given was wonderful. I learned a lot uh, and I think that everything that we learned, we can take back to our students 
and make ourselves better. So I, I thought it was awesome. You know, thinking about the education piece that everyone has kind of touched on, there was a podcast this morning on the Daily from the New York Times talking about um, vaccine education and the different pockets of um, resistance to vaccines. And it's not just the kind of typical anti-vaxxers that you see kind of on the news or maybe your cousins on Facebook or something like that, but um, the different impacts that, um, especially um, racial identity, have of like skepticism of whether it's the, the government or big corporations or whomever. And so, you know, I, I often hear that, you know, we're in this pandemic and once we get the vaccine, it's like life is going to flip a switch and be back to normal. But it seems like um, the education component is going to have to carry on. Like, like we're going to have to emphasize the value of vaccines, how vaccines have changed um, from like Josh talking, you know, from the early 20th century to the present. Um, that's one of the most significant health um, you know, impacts that we've had. And so um, I don't think we're done yet with that education push. There's still um, a lot left out there. That's, that's an interesting point uh, to make, Troy, about vaccines and their history and their legacy as we think about and understand, you know, what every uh, individual has been talking about here, right? This educational component, as well as these, these legacies and ways in which uh, individuals can encounter care uh, and their experiences. Because, yeah, I mean, in the early 1900s, right, you have large-scale cities, uh, that the majority in many cases are first-generation immigrants. Uh, you have the deployment of vaccines in a way that many of these communities found to be very disruptive, uh, right, to, to, their, to their everyday lives, right? Sort of random individuals showing up at their homes saying, we're gonna vaccinate you now, right? So if someone shows up at my home with needles, right, I'm gonna have some questions, right? Uh, you know, uh, and so, you know, the, the arc of the 20th century, right, uh, in, a, in a positive, you know, thing for vaccines, right? As you get into more things like discussions around polio and Jonas Salk, and, you know, it becomes the normality of care, right? You know, the normality of, of vaccine. This is a part of the process. This is what you do. And it is interesting to see sort of how those things, you know, the, you know, former President Obama talks, right, about the pendulum of history and the pendulum of things swinging in different ways, right? It's interesting to see sort of where we are with that and that discussion. And so, you know, to your point, Troy, and to everybody else's point, right, education as it relates to that, right, that dialogue, right, it's, it's going to continue. Okay, if there's no other final thoughts, we can wrap it up. Let me just say thank you to you all. Thank you, Tish, for hosting this with me. And uh, we, have, we appreciate it. Thank you, everybody.